Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Um, If you're able, please uh, join us in standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 14, verses 32 through 40. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Author Anne Lamont tells a story about a family whose uh, six-year-old little girl had a very serious case of leukemia, and her only uh, chance of survival was a blood transfusion. So uh, they wanted to test their eight-year-old son to see if he was a match, so they came and asked him uh, if he would, be, he would be willing to donate his blood. And by any of you parents know this, by asking him, they're just simply giving him a chance to demonstrate character for something they're going to make him do anyways. And the little boy looked at his parents and said, "Uh, I'll have to think about it for a night. We have been looking at these passages in the Gospel of Mark to see Jesus. And in this passage, what you get a chance to do is to see him in the most intense trial of his life and to see what he goes through and to see how he struggles and to how he faces the trial of his life, honestly, so that you can know how to face trials. Because you and I, we face trials in sort of one of two ways. We usually either face them with uh, so much pain and anxiety that we'd almost rather die than go through this trial. Or we just suppress it and run away from it. But the Scriptures have this really unique wisdom for us that says trials are actually one of the greatest opportunities for joy in life. That is, when you have something dreadful to go through, the Bible says this is actually one of the greatest opportunities of your life. And I think one of the main reasons you and I don't know how to go into those and find joy in them is because we always feel like we're going into it alone. And that when you feel like you're alone, it's hell. And what I want to convince you of this morning when we look at Jesus is to convince you that you are not alone. And by peering into him on the night before he is to give his life for us and to see what he goes through, and to compel us to begin to maybe find joy in trials. And here's how you do this. We're going to look at Jesus and see, one, that He is just like us. And so He is with us. 
But secondly, he is not like us at all, but he is for us. Number one, he is just like us, so he's with us. And one of the things that will really compel you about Jesus to look at him in the midst of your trials is if you understand that he knows exactly what you're going through and that he is just like us and he understands our experience because when you're going through something, if anybody tries to reach out to you, one of your main resistance to them is that you're convinced that they have no idea what it's like to be you in the midst of what you're going through. We have a huge resistance to anybody that think, we think does not get our experience. Do you remember the, the uh, early 90s movie, uh, Dangerous Minds, starring Michelle Pfeiffer? It was, it was uh, built off an autobiography of a Marine who had uh, chosen to be a teacher uh, for Teach for America and got sent to an inner city school in the Bay Area. And uh, she's a white woman who's a Marine, and she goes into this inner city school. It's full of uh, kids whose families are in gangs. Uh, none of them are in the same race with her. And uh, they want nothing that she has to say. They want nothing that she has to offer. They want nothing to do with her. And it's not because she's not skilled. It's not because she's not educated. It's not because even she doesn't have anything to offer them. It's because they think you do not understand anything about us. See, but what this text gives you is that the God of Christianity deeply understands what you are going through in the midst of the trial. Now, here's what I mean. Look in verse 33. Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. And he says this, or excuse me, this is Mark's comment. And Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. You have uh, what Spurgeon calls Jesus' untolerable woe. And there's three descriptions here of his agony. First, he is greatly distressed. The Greek word is ekthame besthai. It literally means to be overawed. It's only used two other times in all of the Gospels. One is when Jesus does a miracle and the crowds are just astonished. They, they, they didn't know this is coming. And the other one is when Mary reacts to the resurrected Jesus. That is the context every time this word is used is that people see something they had no idea was coming. They're completely shocked by it. Secondly, he says he's troubled. Now, this comes from a word where we begin to understand the idea of like depression. And what it does is it suggests sort of a lack of confidence or a lack of courage in something. And Mark is conveying to us that Jesus is flirting with second-guessing this whole thing. That what he's looking into is so overwhelming, he's having second thoughts. The third description is it says he's sorrowful even unto death. That is, Jesus says, it would be better to die than to go through this. Now, consider the context of Jesus praying this. Because uh, some of us are troubled by circumstances because we've never been through them. Or we've never prepared for them. And we believe that if we do enough research, or we have enough experience, that that will create an immunity to be able to go through any kind of trial in life. But Jesus... We've seen some of these texts. He has faced demons. He has looked at storms. He's even talked consistently about his own death. And there's something here that's overwhelming. 
What is it? It's verse 36. He says, the cup. Please remove, Abba Father, this cup from me. Now, what is the cup? The cup is an Old Testament metaphor that the prophets would use to talk about God's wrath. I'll give you some examples. This is uh, uh, Jeremiah 25, 15. The cup of wine uh, for the wrath, uh, the cup of wine of wrath. And then again in Isaiah 51, 52, the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. That, this is what Jesus is terrified of. What he's looking into is he's not afraid of nails in his hands. He's not afraid of dying in public. What he's terrified of is what is in that cup. The wrath of God. Now, this is a moment where uh, some of us, whether skeptical uh, or, or loosely in belief, sort of have a departure because few of us go through the stress and burdens of our week and think like, well, at least it's not the wrath of God. Because when we hear that, we think, well, well that's just something that just sounds only for really super spiritual people. But I think we deeply misunderstand what Jesus is looking at in this cup. And I think if you knew what it was, you would be terrified of it as well. What's in that cup? Jerry Seinfeld, I'll tell you what I think it is. Jerry Seinfeld has a joke where he says, you know, the, um, the number one fear in America is public speaking. He says, number two is death. Death is number two. He says that means at the average funeral, people would be, rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. <laughs> but you know, it's not just Jerry Seinfeld. Glenn Crossman from Psychology Today has an article where he says this. He mentions people's number one fear in life is public speaking over death, and it's almost unanimous. He says, when faced with standing up in front of a group, we break into a sweat because we are afraid of rejection. And at a primal level, the fear is so great because we are not merely afraid of being embarrassed or judged, we are afraid of being rejected from the social group, ostracized and left to defend ourselves all our own. We fear ostracism still so much today, it seems, fearing it even more than death because not so long ago, getting kicked out of a group really is a death sentence in all in itself. You hear what he's saying? Here's, here's what we are so terrified of as human beings, is standing in front of somebody and them hating you, mocking you, laughing at you, humiliating you. And it's one thing to do it in front of a crowd of people you have no idea who they are, you're never going to see them again, but the more intimate the group gets, the more scary it is. That's why it's so hard to sometimes admit something, to, to speak honestly in front of your family, because the rejection is just almost worse than the silence. And looking into that, and the fear and the terror of that is sometimes so overwhelming that you, you think, I, 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 will I will never subject myself to their rejection, to that wrath. And that fear that you all have tasted, and you know what? Jesus' cup is filled to the brim with that. And you know what? He is terrified. 
And I think this is actually so instructive for us about going through your trials. I mean, a couple reasons. A, know, knowing Jesus is terrified of this is actually really externally assuring. See, think about this. If you're Mark and you're writing a gospel and a case for Jesus to believe in this man, to throw off everything and give your life for him, why would you include this in here? I mean, it's a bit like your company wanting to hire somebody, and one of the things that you tell them right on the front end, we want you to move to California, you're going to love the income tax, it's just a wonderful part of life. Like, you would just conveniently, like, slide that out. When they ask about it, oh, it's just a rumor, don't worry about that. Why would Mark include this? Look, you would only include this if it happened. And if Mark knows that there's something about Jesus here that actually happened that communicates us about an attribute of God that we need for life. See, without this text, God can be sympathetic but not empathetic. You know, Brene Brown, when she talks about sympathy and empathy, she says, sympathy is uh, when somebody's down in the hole and you look down at them and you say, that seems like it's hard down there. But empathy is, it's really dark in this hole, isn't it? And what you have in, this, have in this text is an external assurance that God knows exactly how you feel when you are in the midst of the terror of that trial. Look, if the cross is our external assurance that you are forgiven... And the resurrection is our external assurance that heaven is for sure coming. Then Gethsemane is our assurance that God is with us and understands us. But Jesus, like this, it's also circumstantially freeing. Uh, at the end of one of Paul's letters, it's almost one of the last things he writes in 2 Timothy 4. He mentions his own personal trial with this guy, Alexander the coppersmith. And he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me really great harm. And if, if Alex Watlington was, uh, was authoring that letter, the next line would say, and I hope that jerk enjoys hell. And those flames are really hot. But what Paul says is he says, may it not be charged against him. How in the world... Do people who've turned on you, who betray you, who hate you, who expose you to the worst kinds of wrath and pain in life, the deepest of trials, do you have the power to be set free to say, may it not be charged against them? The very next line he says is, because the Lord stood by me. John Stott, in his commentary on that text, calls it, this is Paul's Gethsemane. And it can be you and I's. Because if you know that the Lord is with you and understands you in the midst of your trial, what happens is it protects it from being two trials. That is, you don't have to go through what you're going through, the hard thing, and making sure everybody around you pays and there's justice for what you're going through. That is, the Lord's presence has a nearness and an intimacy that can set you free to go through what you're going through and knowing you are not alone. 
And even what God is letting you go through is something that you can find joy and nearness in Him with. But knowing Jesus struggles through this is also really personally comforting. Like when you're facing the hardest things in your life, there's a difference between sharing with someone who has no idea what you're referring to and someone who knows exactly what you're going through. Like if they can't understand the depths of the struggle and sympathize with your temptation or comfort you in loneliness, we say things like, it's worse than you think. But look, you can only say that to somebody who's never, ever thought it. We say, what's wrong with me for wanting this? You can only say that to somebody who's never wanted it. Am I the only one who feels this way? You can only say that to somebody who's never felt it. But Jesus here, Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. One of Becky and I's um, closest friends uh, had her father just suddenly pass away a couple years ago. And when she was working through the pain, uh, one of the most cathartic things for her was to tell stories about him. And my favorite that she shared with us is that when she was uh, 10 years old, she was on this soccer team. And they had a practice uh, the night before a game, and uh, on accident, she just stepped on the goalie's hand. So that poor little girl couldn't come to the game the next day. So when they're sitting around saying, who's going to play goalie, all the girls are like, I'm not playing goalie. And my friend uh, had to play because she's the one who stepped on the goalie's hand. So as she puts on the goalie jersey and goes out there, uh, you know, the parents normally sit, you know, on the sidelines, like on those little metal bleachers. She noticed her dad immediately get up from the bleachers and go behind the goal. And she said, you know, uh, he's standing behind the goal as the game was going on. And after like the sixth goal went in, she said, she heard him go, it's okay, Keek, it's okay, keep going. She said at first, she was like, this is so embarrassing. What does he think he's doing? Coaching me? Helping me? Like he's going to lift my spirits in this horrible moment. And she said in a, in, a, in a flash, she realized what was going on. She said, my dad realized that this moment had a huge potential for humiliation and loneliness and pain. And what he realized is that if she's going to go through that, then we're going to go through it together. And what you have here is the assurance of a Savior looking at you in all of your trials and saying, you will never go through that alone. Because He is just like us. And so He is with us. But secondly... He is not like us at all, but He is for us. See, what I just told you is incredibly encouraging and comforting, but there are some times in life you go through trials that are so intense that you don't need encouragement, you need salvation. You don't just need a friend, you need a Savior. 
And to appreciate what Jesus does here and to understand the depth of his endurance and how different he is from us, you have to put this trial in the context of his other trials because this is not the only trial that Jesus has been through. This is not the only temptation that Jesus has faced. There's other times in the Gospels that we're told that Jesus is tempted with all kinds of things. But those trials are all kinds of temptations that you and I would go through. They're temptations of glory without suffering. They're temptations of fame <laughs> unto uh, the, the, the puffiness of the ego. But Jesus, every other time he is tempted with finding joy, satisfaction, and happiness apart from God and his plan of salvation. But here, in this moment, this is God put on flesh, come for people who are falling asleep on him, who will betray him, will betray him in the coming moments, in the midst of what he's about to go through. He is tempted to take matters into his own hands when he has every right to do it. Look, if Jesus pulls out of this moment, this is not vengeful. This is not resentment. This is not bitterness. This is him having every right to do exactly what he wants to do. But we do not want him to take matters into his own hands. Because in the midst of this trial, if Jesus takes matters into his own hands, you know what that means? It means every single trial that you go through depends upon you. It means you have to take matters into your own hands and solve everything you go through. But Jesus here, what he does is he does a couple things. A, he does the hard thing over the easy thing. He looks at the Father when he's praying and he says, Father, if possible, that this hour might pass from him. Remove this cup. He's asking, is there another way? Is it possible for us to forgive these people, to be in a relationship with them, and me not to have to drink this wrath? And you not have to disown me. Think about this. I mean, if you've ever had a relationship that's gone sideways or you've had a falling out with somebody, we almost always think this. We, like, we'd love to show up and just say like, hey, how you doing? And pretend like none of it happened. And just smile and act, go on our cheery ways. But everybody who goes through that the superficiality is worth, worse than the pain itself. And so what we often would rather do is rather than talk and face and go through the hard conversation of reconciliation, we just walk away from the relationship. But not Jesus here. He chooses the hard thing and will go straight into the wrath for you. But he also chooses the selfless thing over the selfish thing. Look, in every conflict, you have the opportunity to go this. Look, it's either me for you or you for me. 
it's either you're going to pay so that I can get what I want, or I'm going to pay so that you can get what you want. And the only way for a relationship to go forward is for somebody to initiate the selfless thing. It is somebody to lose their rights, to put down their will, and to submit themselves. And Jesus here just says, not my will, but your will be done. He goes selfless over selfishness when he has every cosmic right to do that. He's got every cosmic right to choose he and his father in Trinitarian bliss to go back to what they had before the creation of the world. And he opts for the latter and chooses the selfless thing. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. And this is where the trial of Jesus just comes to life for us. Because this is not the first time that Jesus has prayed in the midst of a trial in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually the third time. You have this time here in the garden. You have up on the mountain after the feeding of the 5,000. And you have out in the wilderness at the beginning of Mark chapter 1 in the midst of his ministry. And what Mark is doing is he's actually having Jesus re-pray through the steps of Israel. If you go to the Old Testament, here's the story of Israel in a nutshell. They're in the garden with God. There's a trial. Adam fails, and they're out. God delivers them out of the, Egypt, out of suffering, crosses over the river. They're with Moses. God calls Moses up. While they're up there, while Moses is up there, they build a golden calf up while he's up on the mountain. Then you have them go out in the wilderness for 40 years where they're tempted over and over and over again with sorts of things, and they fail every single time. And what Mark is trying to get you to see here is that in every circumstance where everyone fails, this man did not. Where everyone gave in, this man persevered. Where everyone fell asleep, this man held fast. And while Jesus is praying and choosing the hard thing over the easy thing and the selfless thing over the selfish thing, the disciples are asleep. And what you and I are meant to understand is that who Jesus is, it's not just to us, it's for us. See, theologians call this the active obedience of Jesus. L let me get Sunday school with you for, for 30 seconds. This is an amazing thing, that when you become a Christian, what it means is that God says you are now in Christ. That means when God looks at you by faith, He sees Jesus. And what Jesus did is He, on the one hand, takes your life and all of your sins and all the times you fell asleep in the midst of trials, turned your back on God, had nothing to do with Him, chose the selfish thing over the selfless thing, the easy thing over the hard thing. And Jesus says, I will die for that. I will pay for that. And 
God looks at you and says, I receive you and accept you as if you have lived the life of Jesus because his life, his active obedience is given to you so that when God looks at you, he sees you as somebody who will always, who has always chosen the selfless thing over the selfish thing and the hard thing over the easy thing. Rendering the trial of all trials in your life accomplished. You realize the hardest thing you will ever face is done. And the only reason that doesn't mean anything to you now is because you and I are so chronologically naive. What do I mean? Well, do you remember when you were in elementary school and you just thought the most challenging thing in life is whether or not these people on the playground will be my friends. And it was really scary. And you thought, you know, if, if they don't let me on that swing set, I don't know how I'm going to go on in life. But then you matured into junior high and you just thought, man, walking down this hallway, going to my locker, this is scary. I so wish I could go back to elementary school when I had nothing to worry about. But then you grow up into high school and you realize, man, my weekends, if I don't have something to do, and I don't fit in that social crowd, I'm a nobody. And you look back at your little junior high self and those cute little junior high kids, and you think, they've got nothing to worry about. They have no idea how intense and how stressful high school is. But then you really grow up and go to college, and life just becomes unbearable. You have to go to class like once a week. You know, you have to, you have to wake up at like 11 a.m., and you've got, you know, an exam that you could, you might, you might have to take online, and you just think, oh, if I could just go back to high school and have nothing to worry about. But then you get a job, and you have to show up every day, and you just think, man, college was the greatest time of life ever. I had nothing to worry about. And, but you get married, and then all of a sudden you have to live with somebody and talk to them and share a bank account, and you start daydreaming about the freedom that you had of singleness and just working. But then you have a baby who starts waking up in the middle of the night, and all you do is just wish it was just you and your spouse with nothing to worry about. And then those darn kids grow up and hate you. And all you do is just, I wish they were just like teeny little kids when all we had to do was just feed them. But then we get into a phase of life, you know, where people start getting divorced. And friends start dying and siblings start dying. And one day spouses start dying. God forbid ever if we have to look at a child and die. Don't you realize this is going to go on and on and on and on? And you're always going to think the thing that you went through was not that big of a deal, but, but what I'm going through now is the biggest deal in life until what if this ends in the throne room of God? And he looks at you and says, what is your life? Because, friends, it's in that moment that you will clearly finally go, him. He withstood. He passed the test. 
He did not give in. And if you knew that trial was done, it would make all your trials now look like the ones you've been through in life and you laugh at. You know, this is the last time Jesus ever calls God Father. Because when he drinks that cup, what it will do is it will cost him his relationship with the Father so that you can have a relationship with the Father. What that means for your trials, friends, is that you've got to understand when you're going through something hard, it is not the cup of wrath. You are not drinking something that is going to destroy you. You are not drinking something that is going to end your life. What is on the table for you is just a teeny little sip of something that actually can make you like this man right here. And if you know he's with you, and when you sip on that, look, it is not ostracization. It is not hell. It's a way for it to be joy. Here's how that Anne Lamont story ended. The little boy came back the next day and said to his parents that he would be willing to donate the blood for his little sister. So they take him to the hospital and they put him on a gurney next to her. They put the needles in the arms and he's transfusing the blood and he closes his eyes and squints him really hard. And after a while of doing this, the doctor comes up and says, are you okay? And the little boy opens his eyes and just says, how soon until I start to die? All night long, he thought about, should I give my life for my little sister? Whatever you're going through, whatever you've been through, here's why right now, you need to take all your burdens and trials and come to Jesus. Whether it's the first time, whether it's been a while, or where you need it this week, it's because on the night before, Jesus is to think about giving his life all for you. He's looking at the Father, and he's saying, how soon until I start to die? And the Father says, tomorrow. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Let me pray. Father, may we see you. Lord, may we see your son standing there for us, embodying this, Lord, in ways we never could. Lord, hallelujah, what a Savior. Whatever anybody's going through, Lord, would, would you, by the power of your Spirit, move towards them and show them you are with us and you are for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.